You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. If you're willing and able to remain standing as we read from Revelation 18. Well, folks, we're 22 sermons deep in Revelation, and it feels like 22 sermons <laughs> deep in Revelation. It does. It does feel a lot like that. I appreciate uh, Brother Robert filling in for me last week. Um, had the opportunity to be with just a lovely church over in uh, Bladen, uh, Bladen Union Baptist. I appreciate all those who were able to come at us. It was great looking out and seeing familiar faces. Uh, it's been a long time since I've done a a five-sermon revival. Um, so my voice is about gone this morning. So if I start cracking like a 13-year-old, you have permission to laugh all you want because uh, I feel your pain. Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich for the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cups she has mixed, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned with fire, for, her, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Father, we pause this morning and we say thank you for your goodness and grace, and we say thank you, Father, for all that you have poured out in our life. We find every single morning that your mercies are fresh and new. Father, even before we have failed, even before we have missed the mark, even before we have done the wrong thing, said the wrong thing, thought the wrong thing, even before all of that, where our sin abounds, even before we commit it, your grace abounds even more. Father, it is amazing, simply amazing, that, Father, you haven't given up on us far before now. It's simply amazing, Lord, that you have not cast me aside. It is incredibly humbling, Father, that you continue to love me in spite of myself. But Father, that's who you are. You're a good father. And Father, I am thankful to know that nothing I will ever do, because I am your son, nothing I will ever do, will ever cause you to cast me aside, that I will never fall out of the palm of your hand. Nothing will ever pluck me out. And I will see you one day, face to face, in that place you have prepared for me. Father, I'm concerned that not everyone in this room is ready. If 
all I'm concerned that there are far too many people playing around with something that shouldn't be played around with. I'm concerned, Father, that for some, Lord, they're just going through the motions. For some, Father, they've never confessed you, not truly, not, not to where it's changed their heart and their life. And so, Father, they have this facade of religion on the outside, but on the inside, they're dead, spiritually dead. Father, my hope and prayer has been, and Lord, we've talked about this a lot, you and I, about as we've walked through this book, that, that you would quicken some hearts, that you would open some eyes, that you would bring some people to the end of themselves, and that once and for all, they put their faith in you. That is my prayer today for every person in this room and those that are watching online. Do a work that only you can do. We love you, Father. We thank you for all that you've already done. And may you be exalted during this time. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So to kind of set the stage for what we're going to look at in chapter 18, we need to go back in the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 19. You don't have to turn over there, but I'm just going to share the story with you real quickly. There's a story there of a man named Lot and his family, and Lot and Abraham were kind of farming the same land, and and there comes a time where there is some conflict between them, and so they decide that they're going to need to kind of part ways, and one's going to take the real fertile soil down here in the valley, and the other's going to take this part of property over here, and they're going to separate their herds. And Lot, he, he takes the, the prime real estate. And the Bible tells us very calmly, very clearly, but really you don't really think much about it. It, it says that Lot cast his tent towards a city called Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, at that point, when you read that, you don't think much about it. You know, okay, so he, he pitched his tent, and the opening of his tent is facing a city called Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not till you get into chapters 18 and 19 that you begin to see how this becomes a problem. So eventually, as Lot looks at this city, eventually this city becomes so alluring to his family that eventually they just move down into the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah much like Babylon that we've, that we've looked at in the context of future events, there, there's always been these kingdoms on earth that have, that have lived unto themselves, that have lost the idea of what morality is. They have no moral north. So over time, these cities, these nations, just kind of cast off any inhibitions that would prevent them from going deeper and deeper and deeper in the immorality of all kinds and all stripes. Well, as we look back into the Old Testament, certainly Sodom and Gomorrah would fit, well, that description. This is a city that has completely gone as far as they can possibly go into immorality, specifically sexual immorality. You might be surprised to hear this, but if we could get in a time machine and we could go back and take some people from our culture back to that culture, I think there would be people in our culture that would blush as to what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's just how bad it was. So Lot and his family are now living in downtown Sodom and Gomorrah, and God decides that it is time for judgment to fall upon these twin cities. But because God is a God of grace, he sends two angels down to earth. They take on the, the form of, of man, men, and, and, and their job is to go into the city and to get out of that city any followers of God, any people that have their faith in God to get them out of there. 
So these two angels go and they see Lot and they don't, they don't waste any time telling Lot and his family what's going on. I'm, I'm skipping over some parts. I'm just giving you the high parts of the story. These angels tell Lot, say, look, you have got to get out of here. Get your family. Get out of here as quickly as you can. God is going to rain down fire upon this city, and he is going to bring it to nothing. You've got to get out of here. And as you read the story of Lot, it seems as though Lot is not getting the... Uh, the hurry of the angels to, to get out. It seems like Lot just kind of keeps tarrying, and, and it, it's not like they, they have any haste in them at all to get out. So eventually, the angels ask Lot, do you, do you have any other family here? You need to go get them. You need to tell them to get their things and get out. In other words, don't worry about your riches. Don't worry about your stuff. You've got to get out. Just like if your house was on fire, you wake up in the middle of the night, your house is on fire, it's already engulfed in flames. The things run through your mind about your, your photo albums or, or maybe some money you've got stashed. But ultimately, in that moment, you've got to get out of the house or you're going to die. That's what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, and that is what Lot has been told. You've got to get out. He goes to his, his daughters and, and, and the extended people around their daughters, and the Bible says that he, that he goes there. Lot goes there and tells them what's going on, and, and people laugh. They laugh about it. Eventually, Lot is able to get his family. The angels again tell him, get out, run, get out of here as quick as you can because God's judgment is about to fall. They finally leave the city, and they were told not to look back. They were told to get out and do not look back. They were allowed to go to this little neighboring town that the angels said, okay, we will spare that town, but go there as quickly as you can. So Lot and his family are or maybe swiftly jogging, or maybe they're on a fast step, but they're finally leaving the city. I don't know how far out of the city they were when God begins to rain down judgment, but what they begin to hear behind them is the screams and the gnashing of teeth and the fire. Maybe they could feel the heat on their back. They could smell the smoke. They could hear the screams. And literally, in a matter of moments, God rains down on this city and levels it in a very, very short period of time. Now, you can imagine as this family is leaving and being told not to look back, there will be curiosity in their heart as to what's happening behind them. But they keep walking, they keep running, they keep going out of the city. And finally, maybe they get on this one hillside and Lot's wife. I would think that maybe it was curiosity that got the best of her, but I think it was more than that. Lot's wife pauses and she looks back. The Bible tells us that in that moment, not only was the city of Sodom and Gomorrah judged, but Lot's wife was judged. God turns her into a pillar of salt. Now, you may read that and go, wow, that was kind of harsh. That, that was, I mean, she just, just looked back. I mean, what, what, why, why would God turn her into a pillar of salt, and, and, and why would we, would we be talking about that now? Because here's what I think was happening when, when Lot began to pat pitch his tent towards Sodom, something got a hold of him and his family. And what turned into a tent on a hillside turned into dwelling in downtown immorality. And, and from what we can tell from the story is that whether they weren't, maybe weren't directly involved, maybe directly engaged, they were certainly okay with what was happening around them. And over time, Sodom and Gomorrah began to take more and more and more of Lot and his family's heart. How do we know this? Because on the way out, 
It was more than curiosity that caused Lot's wife to look back. You see, what I think is, is that the city, the immorality, the culture got some hooks into the heart of Lot's wife. And for, for Lot's wife, in her mind, as she looked back, she believed that what she was leaving behind was more valuable and more important than where she was going. She began to think in her heart and life that there was more back there than there was ahead of her. She began to believe that, that she was leaving something valuable, something that she loved, something that she wanted. She felt like she was leaving that behind, and she began to lament the fact that she could no longer participate in what was happening in downtown Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's why God struck her down in that single moment of time. You see, when we read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot in particular, we find out that it was easier to get Lot and his family out of Sodom than it was to get Sodom out of the heart of Lot's wife. In Revelation chapter 18, we have a funeral in front of us. It's a funeral that God is bringing judgment and destroying this city. Chapter 17 and 18 are an extension of the bold judgments that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. So chapter 17 and 18 kind of zooms in on this system called Babylon, this, this structure of power, politics, money, influence, and yes, even religion. So what you have in this, this system called Babylon that is being led by the Antichrist, who, by the way, he was slain, he was dead, and comes back to life. We looked at that several weeks ago. The world falls on its face before this leader. They declare him as a king. They declare him as a world leader. Sovereign nations begin to lay down their sovereignty and align with this particular leader. The kings of the world begin to worship and honor the beast. We found out weeks ago that the Antichrist is seated on the throne of Satan himself. And that he is empowered by, that Satan is pulling the strings of the Antichrist and the false prophet. The false prophet working miracles, the beast receiving worship. And here what we have is something that, that many world leaders have tried their very best to bring about. They have all of the power, the money, the influence, and the religion all lumped into one entity. And the world is enthralled. The world is bowing on its face before what they have determined is their God. In chapter 17, we begin to see this, this great system begin to crack and fall apart. And in chapter 18, we're going to see the final funeral for this city, this system. This, when we say Babylon, we're talking about the Antichrist. We're talking about the politics. We're talking about the power. We're talking about the money, the influence, all wrapped up into one. What you're also going to find is how the people during that time are going to respond to the death of this city. And I think there's something there for us to pay very, very close attention to. In this chapter, we're going to see why God judged them, and we're going to see how the people respond to this great city falling in a very short period of time. And here's where I want to kind of go with this. We've got to be warned today. Parents, grandparents, families, single folks, I need to give you a warning. You need to be careful how much you enjoy the temporary pleasures of this life because I am convinced that the world's trying to get some hooks into you 
into your heart. I'm convinced that this culture and world that we live in right now is trying its very best to get its hooks into your kids, even at a very young age. There are dangers on every side. There are, there are landmines all around us, and we have got to be careful at how much we entangle ourselves with the pleasures of this life because in chapter 18, we're going to see where it all leads, how it all ends, and how God brings about exactly what he promised he would do. Verse 1, after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. So we have another, yet again, like we've seen all through the book, these great, big, powerful angels who now have a, a message, a specific message to give. And John is to write this down. Now notice in your text, your Bible, how it's laid out. If you're, if you're looking at a, a print copy, you may not be able to see this if you're looking at an app. But notice how chapter 18, notice how the verses are spaced out differently than what you see in chapter 17. Notice how there's more spacing. Notice how certain sections of the text are inset from the, from the left margin, how that each line is kind of spaced out differently. There's a reason for that. The reason is, is what we have in front of us is what's called a lament. If you remember the book of the Old Testament called Lamentations, it's where people pour out incredible sorrow over some great loss. What we have in chapter 18 not only is a funeral, but it is a lament. But what's interesting is, is who is lamenting? Who is broken over what's happening here? Notice what the angel says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable spirit or beast. If you look at this, one of the things that, that gets our attention immediately is, is how that this system of power, of immorality, of money, of influence, of politics have all kind of combined in one powerful system. And at the same time, notice what is also present, demons. Now, if you've been with us for a while, I know you've heard me say this before, but I'm going to say it again because I think it's important. When we talk about, when we as a church talk about demons, when we talk about Satan, we're not talking about some invisible force out there that is kind of like representative of all things bad. What we are talking about is literal demons, literal beings. We're talking about Satan, who is a literal being who is walking upon this earth. He's not some kind of fairy tale. He's not something that was made up by Bible scholars. He is literal, and he is seeking to destroy your family and all that you believe. He's seeking to mislead. He's seeking to lie. He's seeking to put some hooks in you and get your attention. So in this great, powerful, one-world nation, you have demonic forces that are present. They are, they are in the background, but in this time, in this stage of the, of the Great Tribulation, which is in the latter part of that three and a half years, what we see here at this final stage is that we have the very presence of demons, and I don't think they're hiding at this point in history. I think you can see their influence. I think you can feel their presence. Because remember, this Antichrist, this one who everyone is worshiping, he is seated on the throne of Satan at this time. So they're going to be judged because of their demonic presence. They're going to be judged because of their embrace of all things demonic. Look at verse 3. For all nations have drunk the wine of passion of her sexual immorality. They're going to be judged because of the idol tree. When we see sexual immorality anywhere in the Bible, almost always you can connect to that 
adultery, spiritual adultery, adultery where people have turned their hearts away from God and turned towards an idol. Whether it be the Old Testament or whether it be the New Testament, anytime you see idolatry, you almost always see sexual immorality. When you see sexual immorality, you will almost always see idolatry. The two are connected. So these people are going to be judged because of their sexual immorality, which is ultimately because of their worship of this beast, this great world leader. As I've said, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, here at this point in time, all inhibitions have been cast aside. So whether it was in Sodom and Gomorrah or here in this last stage of history, the last kingdom that will be in power, what you would see on the streets of Babylon, this city, in the cities of earth at this time, what you would see is sexual immorality out in the streets. And what's amazing to me is, is where we are today, our culture, and, and the restraints that we are constantly trying to cast off, I am firmly convinced that what we see today is setting the stage for what's going to happen in these last times. That's why I believe, because of what's happening with the, the culture rapidly running towards sexual immorality, unlike anything you've ever seen in your lifetime, I believe that that is setting the stage for what's about to happen. So I come back to the statement I've said probably a hundred times, folks, we are running out of time here. We are right on the doorstep. We're right on the threshold of Jesus making a move and fulfilling what he's been promising and what the prophets have been prophesying, pro- promising for years. We're right on the cusp. They're going to be judged because of their idolatry. But notice what else, verse 4. I'm sorry, back up to verse 3. It says, the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. I've told you before that when you read Scripture and you see things being repeated over and over and over again, you need to pay attention to that. Throughout this text, we see over and over again the luxury of living that these people were enjoying at this time. Apparently, they had lots of money, lots of power. That money was being given out and distributed, and people were living the very high lifestyle that our world has been seeking ever since the fall. That they've got all the money, all the power, all the influence. They, the, the Bible says that they had delicacies. They were living in luxury, and they are in love with the Antichrist. They're in love with this system that gives them all that they want. It says here that they've grown rich from having committed immorality with this system called Babylon and the Antichrist. Look at verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. This angel says to John that for the people that are living at this time, there's going to be God's people who are living in this culture, and God is going to say to them, it's time for you to come out. Now, keep in mind, all through the New Testament, what do we see? We see God saying to his people, go into a culture that is lost and dying. Go with the gospel, the good news. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Over and over again, all through Scripture, what do we see God saying? God saying, go, go tell people about the good news. Tell them about the judgment that's coming. But at this point, at this point, you know what God does? God says, all my people come out. There will be people who will put their faith in Christ during this awful time of judgment. And apparently those people are still trying to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. They're still trying 
to see people forsake the gods of this earth and surrender to him. And, and so God says to them, come out, because I don't want you to get, too, I don't want the culture to get too many hooks in you. I want you to come out because the time of grace and the time of patience is now past. We're beyond that now. Verse 5, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. I think we might want to pay attention when God says that the sins of humanity are heaped as high as heaven. He gives that illustration there. So when, when God says that through this angel, God is fully aware of the immorality that is going on. He's fully aware of the motivations of the hearts of the people. And when God looks at this earth and he looks at this system, he looks at Babylon, he looks at what's going on, he tells his people to come out because their sins have been piled as high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Verse 6, pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she has mixed. As she has glorified herself and lived in luxury, God says through this angel, I'm going to pay her back double for what she's done to my people and how she has responded to my grace. So you might think, well, why would God pay her back double? Well, on the one hand, for what this nation, this this evil system has done. God is going to judge them for the sins they've committed, but I also believe that God is going to judge them for the intents and the contents of their heart. Because inside the hearts of these leaders are a whole lot more sin and evil that they want to do. They have killed God's people. They have slain them in the streets, and they have lived for themselves. And God says, I'm going to pour back on them double for what they've poured out. They've lived in luxury Verse 7 says that it's glorified themselves. So give her like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says this, I said as queen, I am the widow, and mourning I will never see. This angel pulls back the veil just a little bit. God pulls back the veil just a little bit of, of the hearts of humanity at this point in history. And what we see in their heart is exactly the same thing we see today. In their heart, they believe that they are kings and queens. They, they believe that they are immortal, that they call the shots, that they are in control, that life is just going to be one big perpetual party. They are in control. They have the money. They have the power. They have the influence. They have the politics. They have the nations. They have the kings. They have the banking system. They have the media. They have it all. They're sitting on this big heap of power, and they have decided in themselves that nothing will ever raise itself against us. Pretty prideful, isn't it? Pretty arrogant. And in their heart, they believe they are kings and queens. In their heart, they believe. They say, we are no widow. What that means is they are beholden to no one. They are, they are under the influence of no one. They are in control. They have the power. And get this, and mourning I shall never see. Our culture right now is, believes full well that there will never be judgment for their actions. They believe that they're going to somehow, somehow, if they believe in any kind of God at all, they believe that somehow when they have to stand before whatever God they believe in, that somehow this God is going to give them a wink and a pat on the back, come on into whatever utopia looks like, that you're welcome here. There's nothing, nothing you need to worry about because you are a good little person or you did a few things right, everything's going to be okay. But the Bible stands in stark contrast to that, that every man will be judged, every woman will give an account, and if you don't have Jesus in your life, you will be cast aside, period. They think that everything's going to be just fine. In verse 8, he says, 
for this reason, for the reason of their arrogance and their pride, for this reason her plagues will come in a single day. The Bible says here that in a single hour, this city and this structure and this power is going to be decimated. How could that be? How could something so powerful be decimated in such a short period of time? We have context for this. Hiroshima, remember that story I told you about that, that first atom bomb that was dropped and how in a matter, a matter of seconds, hundreds of thousands of people lost their life? Thousands of people vaporized? A city that was massive, leveled? So, so we have within our context of science and even in our own history where a city that was once there and vibrant is now gone in a matter of seconds. God will pour out judgment because of their pride. Because the hooks of this world got so deep into them that even as God is pouring out judgments, they still rejected him. Even as God sent witnesses, they still rejected him. As God would, would give them space and time, would stop the judgments for a period of time to give them an opportunity to respond, they still didn't. So God says to his people, come out. My patience is over. My grace is done. Now judgment is left. I don't know if you've noticed this, but if, if you go to YouTube very much, if you're on YouTube, have you ever noticed how these software platforms, these online platforms seem to be, well, very closely tracking what you're doing? I'll give you an example. Let's say your dishwasher breaks down. You don't want to buy a new dishwasher. You want to fix the dishwasher you got. So what do you do? You go to YouTube. It's a powerful tool. You can put in your, your type of dishwasher there and and put in do-it-yourself fix or whatever, and all of a sudden you get 30 videos, and you'll probably find some guy somewhere who's got your exact model sitting on a workbench, and he's going to take you through in 15 minutes step-by-step step, on how to fix your dishwasher that won't drain. So you go through it, you fix the dishwasher, and everybody's happy. Two days later, you get back on YouTube, and you notice something very odd and strange. As soon as you pull YouTube up, you've got all these recommended videos, and guess what they focus on? dishwashers, everything you ever want to know about a dishwasher, things you were never asking about a dishwasher. You're going to have kids who put firecrackers in a dishwasher and blew it up. You're, you're going to have a, a dishwasher from uh, 1975 that somebody's still using. They made a video about it. You're going to have ads popping up from Lowe's and Home Depot about a dishwasher sale that is just happening this week. Everything you ever want to know about a dishwasher is going to come up. Now, that should make you pause and go, they must be keeping up. Well, yes, they are. It's called cookies and all kinds. I'm not a tech guy, so I don't know any of this stuff, but I know that they know that if they can put more stuff in front of you about dishwashers, maybe, maybe you'll buy a new dishwasher. But here's the really odd thing. You'll begin to find these other videos that maybe not directly connected to dishwashers, maybe loosely that takes you down a whole other rabbit trail. And because we love entertainment as American people, we love entertainment, right? We get there, and next thing you know, three hours have gone by, and we've been watching these 30-second, one-minute videos that started out with dishwasher repair, and now it's something totally different. Some of them may be cute and funny. Some of them not so much. So instead of a dishwasher, let me put this in front of you. Let's say that you're having trouble in your marriage. 
and, and you're looking for maybe some good Bible teaching on, on intimacy and marriage. So you, you get on YouTube and maybe a David Jeremiah or a Chuck Swindoll or somebody like that's got some teaching about intimacy and marriage because you're struggling with that in your marriage. And so you put that on there and you seek it. And the first video pops up, oh, that's great, I watch it. The next time you come back, some of these videos may not have anything to do with maybe biblical truth, uh, but maybe things are a little bit more salacious. Maybe, a little, maybe some things that kind of, I don't know, engage your flesh a little bit. And the next thing you know, hours later, we're still scrolling and watching videos. I'm not a TikTok fan. I'm not on TikTok. But I hear that TikTok is even a lot years better at YouTube than this. So the next thing you know, you're watching videos that just two weeks ago you would have never sought, searched, you would have never looked for, you would have never went in your, in your search bar and searched out this particular video, but yet here you are watching. You started, you started with a dishwasher, and, and now you're, you're watching something that is, well, erotic and wrong and sexually driven, but you're finding entertainment in it, so, man, it's got one million views. It can't be wrong, Right? So the next thing you know, we're watching stuff that just a few weeks ago would have offended us and we, we, we would have stood against, but now, because we've been watching these videos and watching them over and over again, all of a sudden, all of a sudden we like it. And at the same time, we're having to hide it from the rest of our family because we don't want anybody to know, but yet at the same time, we're justifying it in our mind because it's, no real, it's really no big deal, right? And you see what happens is, is these barbed hooks, just like the ones I use fishing, when I go fishing, these barbed hooks, that, that when it gets caught in the, in the gills of the fish or in the mouth of the fish, I've got him. He can't get off of it. And I reel him in. And I'm wondering if while you're watching YouTube and, and kids while you're looking at TikTok, I'm wondering if some hooks aren't getting set. I wonder if some things aren't getting connected to our heart that are pulling us deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into immorality. We're falling slowly in love with the culture. And now we're at this place where we're trying to justify what we're looking at and what we're engaging with with our walk with Christ. And somehow in our mind, we've come up with a way to justify it. But deep down we know, deep down we know that the Holy Spirit is saying this is wrong, this is wrong. This is wrong. Slowly it conditions you. Slowly it pulls the hooks tighter and tighter. Slowly. God says to his people, come out. He didn't want his people to be there any longer because he was concerned that the hooks might get set in their heart. And I wonder if in that moment when Lot's wife is walking over that ridge, that hook that was set in her heart, all of a sudden pulls her back and she looks back with longing and desire to go back to the way it was when in fact there's nothing back there but destruction. When God brings judgment upon this system of immorality, this system of immorality had a whole lot of people hooked. There were a whole lot of people at this time, far more people than were following Christ by faith Far more people who had those hooks set deep, and they were worshiping this system. Because it was giving them what they wanted. It was, it was giving them some kind of satisfaction. It was giving them, well, what they thought was real life. Look at verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, being the system, the system of Babylon, 
will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand afar off in the fear of torment, and they will say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. So when we see in the remainder of this chapter, as God destroys the city, you see, you see the kings and the rulers, you see the businessmen, you see the merchants. They're all lamenting, they're all mourning, they're all at a funeral walking by the casket of something they love desperately. And they realize that it will never be the same again. All of these people, the merchants, the kings, and the rulers, they're just like Lot's wife. They're looking back, and they're mourning the loss of all that they've been living for all of their life. They will weep and wail over her. Verse 11, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn her since no one will buy their cargo anymore. Why are they weeping and why are they mourning? It's not because the Antichrist is dead. It's not because the system itself has failed. It's not because the God they worship has now been dethroned. They're mourning because it's hit their pocketbook. No longer will they be able to engage in all of the immorality. No longer will they have money in their pocket to be able to buy whatever they want. No longer will they have status and power. It's all gone. They're mourning the loss of the true God they were worshiping. The God they were worshiping was not so much the Antichrist as it was the wealth and power that came with him. And wealth and power are very alluring. And when those hooks get set deep in your heart, only Christ can set you free from something that takes such a hold of you. The angels are going to rejoice at this city falling. The merchants are, are, are crying. They're, they're broken. Look at all the things that they were dealing in, gold, silver, jewels. But I want to bring your attention really quick to this last phrase, horses and chariots. This is in verse, uh, verse uh, uh, 13. Horses and chariots and slaves that is human souls. In other words, when we get into this final stage of humanity, this final stage of world kingdoms, guess what's going to have a, a resurrection? Guess what's going to be reborn in the tribulation time? Slavery. The trafficking of human souls for the purposes of the Antichrist and his kingdom. We know that during the Roman Empire, the last great Roman Empire, the the immoral, ungodly Roman Empire, we know that during their history they had some 60 million slaves. Babylon, this system will surpass anything that Rome ever thought about doing as far as immorality, as far as anger and harshness and killing and murder. This kingdom will be far more than that. So you can imagine that there will be millions of people enslaved by this king and kingdom. It says, verse 16, Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet adorned with gold, with jewels and pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid to waste. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, as he was teaching that great sermon and giving us the ethical standards of what it looks like to follow him by faith. That sermon was designed for the 12. Yes, there was crowds there. But the sermon itself was designed for those 12, would eventually be 11, who will go on and launch the New Testament church after they are filled with the Holy Spirit. So God gives them a set of ethics. This is, how it, this is what it looks like for an individual to follow me by faith, to take up a cross and follow me. This is what it looks like. 
And in that sermon, he, he says to them, he says, wherever, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be. This is in Matthew chapter 6. He says, whatever you treasure, your heart will follow that. So, so if you treasure money, power, and fame, it will have your heart. If, if you treasure what other people think about you, if your life is dictated by what everyone else thinks, guess if that's what you treasure, then that has your heart. Not the muscle beating in your chest, but the real you. That's what you will worship. He also says in that same section, he says, you cannot worship both Christ and money or things. He says, you'll either love the one and hate the other or you'll hate the one and love the other, but you can't have it both ways. Your heart can only be dedicated to one. There is no way to divide your heart's attention between the world and Christ. There is no way to have it both ways. There is no way to worship Christ and money and things and power. Whatever has, whatever has your focus, whatever you treasure, your heart will follow. These folks at this time had already made their profession and confession clear. They loved power, money, luxury. And God says that that will all be brought to waste. Verse 21, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. In these final verses in 21 through 24, there are six statements about what will be found no more, that the destruction that God is getting ready to pour out will be absolutely devastating. Notice this, he says that the city of Babylon, this great city, will be found no more with all of its power, all of its influence, all of its money. God is going to pulverize this city out of existence. And not only will it be out of existence, but it'll be like it never existed. That, that all of these years that they've been able to reign, uh, probably at least six years, seven years through this tribulation period, where they gain power, gain influence, God will destroy them to such a degree that you'll not even be able to find a trace of them. Verse 22, he says, And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. There's the second no more. The partying will come to an end. The concerts will come to an end. The luxury will come to an end. If the streets of these kingdoms and this great city where there's been partying and living it up for a long period of time, it will all come to a complete and bitter end. No more celebrations will be heard. Look at the latter part, the next part of verse 22. He says, and any craftsman and any craft will found, be found in you no more. There will no longer be any craftsmen to put their, put their shoulders and hands to the work and task of rebuilding this city. There's not going to be a meeting after this city is destroyed where all the craftsmen are going to come together and say, okay, how do we start to rebuild? It's not going to happen. They're all going to be destroyed. They're all going to be gone. This city will never be rebuilt. This will be the last great kingdom that will ever, ever rule in the hearts of men. But there's another kingdom coming. We'll get to that next week. So there'll be no more craftsmen. There'll be no more musicians. The sound of the meal you will hear no more. Look at verse 23. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. I believe this is referring to none other, other than God's people who are still on this planet, very few of them. And they're living in this system, being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And God says to them, come out. God is going to take the light out. 
He's going to remove them out. No longer will the gospel be proclaimed. No longer will God's grace be extended. At this point, the light is going to be turned out. There will be no more second chances. It will shine on you no more. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. There will be no more weddings, which also means there will be no more children. There will be no more celebrating. There will be no more marriages. There will be no more unions where these cities are blessed through that even Though they are far from God, no more of that will happen. He says, for your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by her sorcery. These merchants were the great ones. They had great power, great authority, great wealth. It's all gone in a matter of moments. And then that final verse, verse, verse 24, and in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints, And all who have been slain on the earth, all that they had done in killing God's people has now come to full fruition and God has poured out his judgment. So Lot's wife, walking over that hillside, she looks back and there's only one other place in Scripture where she's mentioned. Now Peter, in his first letter, Peter mentions Lot, but there's only one other time that Lot's wife is mentioned. Turn to Luke chapter 17. And we'll wrap it up here. I want you to see why we need to be very careful as to what gets hooks in our heart and hooks in our life. In chapter 17 of Luke, Jesus is talking to the disciples about the last days. They were curious as to when this was all going to be wrapped up, so they would constantly be asking Jesus questions. And they're wanting to know about the coming of his kingdom. So in chapter 17, verses 22 and following, Jesus answers them, and he begins to to kind of unpack what those last days are going to look like. And the first thing that Jesus says, he says, in the last days, it's going to be like the days of Noah. He says, in the days of Noah, the people were warned that, that God was going to judge the earth with a great flood. Yet what were they doing? Well, they were continuing in business. They were continuing in their parties. They were continuing to do life as they'd always done, and they rejected the message of Noah, they rejected that judgment was going to come because just like Babylon, they thought it was going to go on forever and ever, just like that. And then all of a sudden, the rains began to pour, and Noah entered the ark, it says in verse 27, and the floods came, and it destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, Fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Here it is, verse 30. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Chapter 18 of Revelation connects right back to what Jesus was saying in Luke 17, that in that day, after all that they've seen, after they've seen the power of God over and over again, they choose the world rather than God. They continue on with their parties. They continue on with their culture as though it's going to last forever. And Jesus says this, verse 31, On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them out. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. In other words, when God's people come out of that, don't turn back. Don't run back into the burning house and try to get your photo albums. Don't don't tarry. Don't wait, just like he told Lot. Just like he says in Revelation 18 to his people, get out. He's going to say, get out, and the people are to get out. Don't worry about your stuff. And here's why. He says, do not turn back. Verse 32, three words, remember Lot's wife. That is the only other place in Scripture 
that Lot's wife is mentioned. And Jesus just happens to mention it here. And it seems to be right in the middle of a teaching that really doesn't make sense. He's teaching and all of a sudden, hey, by the way, guys, it's almost like he steps aside. Hey, by the way, guys, let me just tell you something. Uh, do you remember Lot's wife? Do you remember how she got on that hillside and something turned her attention back to Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you realize how much the culture had its hooks in the hearts, in the heart of Lot's wife? Verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever seeks, whoever seeks to live it up now, whoever seeks to take all that the world has to give you, everyone who seeks to drink from the cesspool of this culture and say that it's good, everyone who tries to preserve your life now, everyone who lives it up now, guess what? In the end, you will lose it all. Your money, your power, your influence, your 401k, your BMW, your house at the beach, your house at the mountains, your 5,000 square foot house you live in now that you take great pride in, the two boats in the garage, the four-wheelers, the UTVs, everything else you've got, everything you take pride in, if you're going to live for now, if you're going to live it all out now, then you're going to lose it all. Or, Jesus says, whoever loses his life now will actually end up keeping it and finding it. When Lot's wife turned back, she believed the best of her life was back there because the culture had a hook in her heart. Some of you have a hook in your heart. If we were to look at your history file on your laptop at what you're looking at online, we might find some hooks. Kids, if we looked at your TikTok history and what you're looking at at TikTok, we might find that the culture is setting some hooks in your heart. Some you might not even realize right now. It's going to lead you down a path of trying to live it all now and while doing so, losing it all. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. What I'm talking about is if you're saved, there's only one person who has your heart. If, if, if you're born again, there's only one who has your heart. And everything else is weighed out by that king, by what he says, by, by what he's called you to. And everything else, we are to forsake and follow this one king. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if, if you knew today that today was going to be your last day on earth. If you knew today at 5 o'clock your, your life was gone. You knew at 5 o'clock today, it's over. I wonder how much lamenting you would do. I wonder how much looking back you would do and go, man, I'm really going to miss that. and Man, I'm going to miss that. and Man, I don't know if I can live without that. I, I, don't, I don't know that I can face an eternity, a future without that. And in that moment, rather than looking forward to seeing your king bowing at his feet, being with him for eternity, the hooks in your heart begin to pull back on you and you begin to lament and mourn the things in this life that should really mean nothing to you and yet mean far more than they should. You see, it was a lot easier to get Lot and his wife out of Sodom than it was to get Sodom out of their heart. And I wonder what has your heart. The week before last, two Sundays ago, I stood at that side door back there and I shook hands with three people that when they walked out that door, they had no idea that I was going to be planning their funeral. 
two men and one lady that walked right out that side door, and I shook their hand, looked them in the eye, and had our usual goodbyes and hellos and all that. And by Tuesday that week, their funerals were being planned. You may walk out today and shake my hand when we go out that side door. You may shake my hand, and, and by 5 o'clock this afternoon, you hear the Lord's taking me home. We'll miss my family, miss my kids, but I want you to hear me very clearly what I'm about to tell you. I am ready to go. If I get to bow before my king this afternoon, this evening, it is all fine and well with me. It is all good. And I am diligently trying to keep these hooks out of my heart. I'm diligently trying to keep only one thing one thing, the focus of my heart. But man, the world has got some really good tactics. And I'm begging you today, and I'm pleading with you today to evaluate your heart and take a look at what has some hooks in there. And the way you can find out is if you were to die today, if you were to die today, what would you lament over? Rather than embracing a Savior who loves you and gave himself for you, rather than looking forward to seeing him and worshiping him, what is it that's pulling you back? What is it that has you looking back? What is it that makes you think that what's in your past is better than what's in your future? What is it? Is it time to forsake some of those things? Is it, is it time to seek some help from someone else to get some hooks out of your heart? Could, could it be that, that this is the time, this is the day, this is the moment of salvation for the first time in your life, that you put your faith in something greater than yourself, that that day's today. What has your heart hooked? What's, what's pulling you back? Would you be willing to forsake all and choose this day whom you're going to serve? Father, we love you and we thank you for the clarity of your word. Father, we, we admit that your word is tough and hard sometimes, and it cuts deeply. And Father, that's what we need. That's what I need. So, Father, right now there is a battle going on in the hearts and minds of the people in this room and those that are watching online between what they know is the right path versus the one that they've fallen in love with, and they're not the same. The path that they're walking that they've fallen in love with is not the path that leads to everlasting life. It's a path that leads to destruction. And all of our justifying and all of our excuse making and all of our thinking that everything's going to be okay, deep down inside we know everything is not okay. We know it's not. We hear the compelling voice of our Creator. We hear it and we choose to either ignore it or listen. We choose to either heed it or walk away. And Father, whatever we choose, you will hold us accountable. So in this moment, I pray that all other voices would cease, all other sounds would cease, all other all the things that are taking our attention would cease. In this moment, in this moment, we'd only hear yours. Father, we don't want to be playing around. We don't want to be playing games. Because when your son came and died, he didn't play any games. He laid down his life that we may find it. He laid down his life at the, so that the only king of our heart would be you. 
So, Father, it comes down to this moment. And I pray, Father, that they would hear your voice and hear it clearly. And that all the cares of this world, all the things that we've been running toward would just fade, fade away. And the beauty of your glory. Father, we'll have your will and your way in the hearts of your people today. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park.